0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Mother Kind podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pressing play. I am so happy you're here because this episode is going to blow your mind. Sarah Ockwell-Smith is a mum of four. After the birth of her first child, she retrained as an antenatal teacher and a doula. And she has since worked with thousands of parents over the last 17 years. She is also the prolific author of 12 books, including The Gentle Sleep Book and The Gentle Eating Book. This episode is going to blow your mind because it might not be what you think. Sarah really vulnerably and honestly shares an incredible shift that's happened to her in the past couple of years that has totally transformed how she sees parenting and being a parent. You're going to learn the wake-up call that happened in Sarah's life that has totally changed who she is, how she operates and how she views parenting. We talk in depth about why looking at your childhood is the most important thing you can do as a parent. As you know, I'm incredibly passionate about that. We talk about the Good Girl adaptation, Sarah and I both share what it's meant in our lives and how it's played havoc with us trying to show up as the people and the parents that we want to be in the world. We talk about people pleasing and boundaries and Sarah talks about her own experience of learning to place boundaries what she's found hard and how she does it today. We also talk about what gentle parenting really is, what it isn't, and how gentle parenting in the media sometimes gets misconstrued and misunderstood. At the end, we have an incredibly powerful exchange about the parenting industry. And given that Sarah has been at the forefront of the parenting industry for over 17 years, it is so powerful to hear her insights about what she thinks we really need as parents and where the parenting advice industry has gone wrong and it does us a disservice. Please stay on to listen to that at the end. It is mind-blowing. This conversation, I think it's transformational. I'm using lots of big words about this conversation because I really, really believe it. I'm so grateful that Sarah shared with us so honestly her journey and please do pass this on. Share it with three of your mum friends that you want to hear this. Be that person in your group, in your friendship group, in your NCT group, in your mum group. Be that person that is supporting, sharing, inspiring, uplifting, empowering other people. Help me to do that this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. It's grown because of you, my listeners. So let's keep sharing this wisdom and get more and more of these messages out to the millions and millions of mothers that need it. Sarah, I'm so excited to chat to you this morning. One of your books is currently on my bedside table about eating. Right. It is helping me so much. So, thank you. And I'm just absolutely honored to be sat with you this morning. I love your work. I love your approach and your philosophy. And this new book that we're going to be talking about is just incredible. So, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, the new book is about how to be a calm parent. And I wanted to firstly unpack your. I guess you would call it transformational journey to that because you said Mm -hmm. I hugely struggled with anger, outbursts and yelling. I yelled a lot. I was a major stress head. I've also been prone to crippling feelings of inadequacy and guilt with a good side order of anxiety thrown in. I mean, I absolutely relate to all of that. But you also had this huge wake up call that has transitioned your inner experience of being a parent. And I just cannot Mm -hmm. wait to dive into that with you. So tell us about that shift, what happened and how has it changed who you are and what you've put in this book?
1: I guess anybody listening, if you work in a, in a sort of a helping industry, so whether you're, you know, working as I did with new parents or sort of counselling or a nursing type thing, you run yourself into burnout when you're focusing on other people's needs and not your own. And I think mothering in particular, I don't want to exclude fathers, but I do think women are more likely to do it, that we run ourselves into the ground for the sake of helping our children and our partners and everybody else. And basically, I talk hugely in the book about our own upbringing and I realise now that I was incredibly anxious as a child, but that was kind of glossed over by my whole family. My anxiety was never dealt with. And my anxiety as I grew older, combined with stress, morphed into a really serious temper and anger issues. And then if you combine the anger with Just how exhausted I was. I mean, I talk in the book about the amount of jobs I had and what I was doing, and I was so ridiculously busy, which is praised by society. So I felt that I should keep doing it. And then I threw four children into the balance, and then a whole lot of sort of unresolved trauma. And the fact that I was always helping others felt that I never had time for myself. So when I started doing this by this, I mean, working with parents, writing books and stuff sort of 12, 15 years ago, I kind of buried everything that. I should have dealt with in order that I could focus on others and I kind of never dealt with anything and I bumble along day to day all right but then I'd have these enormous outbursts like proper screaming yelling throwing things like really quite scary or I would have the opposite and I would have these huge crashes and be absolutely exhausted I'm a huge introvert anyway but I'd be even more introverted and wouldn't want to speak to anybody or see anybody And this is all while I'm being a parenting expert and people are saying, I don't know how you do it. You're so wonderful. So, I mean, before we went on air, we spoke about the fact that like most professional women are having imposter syndrome. And I kind of felt that I was wearing a character for about 10 years and I was being this parenting expert and this mum of four who had everything all under control. And I was writing these parenting books. And I was taking my own advice from a parenting perspective, but I wasn't taking my own advice in terms of looking after myself. I wrote Baby Calm and Toddler Calm. And this is like back in 2013. And people saying, you've got to write Parent Calm. And I'm like, no, 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 not yet. Simply because I haven't figured it out myself. And it felt so fraudulent to write it. I mean, literally every book I've ever brought out, people have kept asking me to write a book about being a parent and being calm. And I just kept sort of grappling and thinking, I can't, I literally can't write this book because I don't know how to do it myself. And that kind of carried on and carried on. And as my kids have got older, I've personally found parenting a lot harder and a lot more draining and exhausting. You know, I have four grown up teenagers, you know, off to university level and stuff. And I basically spent two decades of my life giving and giving and giving. And then... I say in the book, you know, it was always it. I kept going to the GP and saying, I'm really tired. What's wrong with me? And my blood test would always come back fine, but I would always have like bug after bug after bug. And then I think things came to a real head for two reasons. One was COVID and the kind of having to live with your own demons. And I couldn't be busy anymore because I couldn't go out of the house. And I was also diagnosed with cancer in the October of 2019. So combination of having cancer treatment and being stuck in a house with COVID was like my worst nightmare because I deal with stress and anxiety by being ridiculously busy and I couldn't do ridiculously busy anymore. There wasn't any kind of magic moment. It was just, uh, okay, right now I really need to do that work that I know I've needed to do for at least 10 or 20 years. There wasn't any kind of one stepping point, it was just a realisation that I can't carry on like this anymore. It's not just wanting to change for my children, but like literally I am so exhausted, I am so tired and I'm so burnt out that this can't continue. And during COVID, I basically, I can't run away from stuff by being busy anymore. So kind of sat down with myself and worked through stuff and then that then became a book. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is actually the right time to write this now. I actually feel that I'm being authentic now. I've always said I wouldn't write a book about something I haven't personally experienced. So people say, you know, will you write a twins book? But no, because I've never had twins and I need to have lived something to be able to talk about it. I mean, it's not a parenting book. There's nothing really about looking after your children in it at all. It's about looking after yourself and it's fairly autobiographical in a way. I think if you read between the lines, you can see what I went through as a process. Such a stupidly long answer, sorry.
0: <laughs> it's an incredible answer. And I just really honour your honesty and your vulnerability. And I think it just reminds me that, isn't it so easy to just look at the outside? Cause so, you even won an award, didn't you? At one point for like being <laughs> mom or something. And it's just so easy yeah. to forget the inner experience. And, you know, I've come to see, as I'm sure you have, that that busyness is a trauma response. When you had that enforced stopping. Mm. and sometimes life sort of shakes you to wake you doesn't it and I feel like I've had that in my own life where just and mm-hmm. dropped but in order to wake me up to something that otherwise I just wouldn't have wanted to look at because mm-hmm. it's painful and it's hard what did you begin to uncover behind that anxiety behind that busyness behind
1: those anger and that withdrawing what was there and how did you start to do that? I mean, this is exactly where the book starts. You basically can't talk about the present without talking about the past. So in How to Be a Calm Parent, I literally start with Shadows from the Nursery. So how our own upbringing impacts us. You know, like I think we all know about ourselves deep down, we just bury it. So I had a really lovely upbringing. I have really loving parents. I came from a very kind of privileged middle-class background, but my mum had struggled really badly with postnatal depression and she had a stillbirth after me. So she was emotionally in quite a fragile headspace. And then when I was nine, I think she was also diagnosed with cancer. So I basically grew up being a good girl. Like I realized that I couldn't really bother my parents with all my emotions because they were going through so much stuff. I was an only child as well. And I grew up very quickly I was very quickly sort of doing all the chores around the house and caring for my mom when she was terminally ill. And I was always the dependable one, the reliable one. And I seemed, I guess, if you were looking in, like I was coping with everything really well. But I think I basically grew up for almost my whole childhood, keeping these emotions inside because I didn't want to be naughty and I didn't want to be a bother. And as I say, I was incredibly anxious, but I think my whole family kind of perceived that as me being really shy. And sort of socially awkward and I guess I am like I'm introverted and I am socially awkward but the underpinning of all of that is anxiety so I've realized I started creating these strange behaviors to help me cope with the anxiety when what I really needed was a therapist or the doctor or something basically I spent my childhood being the good girl being the quiet one not causing bother and as a stress response I was very much kind of fawning to people and I never learned healthy ways to let difficult feelings out, basically. So, as I grew into adulthood, I carried on. You know, I'm a horrible people pleaser and I carried on doing that. And because I never let anything out, it all just sat there. And that was fine because I became really good at holding on to a lot of stuff. But then when something triggered me, I would explode like a volcano. So, what I basically learned the fact that I know that I do that and I need to let it out more so that I don't explode. Well, you and I,
0: very 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 similar patterns the good girl adaptation I think is incredibly Mm. prevalent you know I've spoken to thousands of people about this at this point as I'm sure as have you so fascinating in this parenting space and yet you know people would say to my mum you know gosh like we just want a daughter like yours she's so Mm. good and I wasn't good as you say I was pushing down how I really felt I was shut, like, down. Yeah. <laughs> shut down yeah shut down because I got unfortunately the very unconscious message I was never told that I couldn't bring my feelings to my parents I just picked no, it and no, I was not I just picked it up and I think it's just so fascinating isn't it how we see sometimes our children with you know these huge emotions and it's so easy
1: to think what's wrong that's incredible mm-hmm. isn't it when when children yeah, are able- yeah Process that emotion. And then we've both become the walking cliche of becoming helpers or therapists. And, you exactly. know, I think most people who do this work do it because there is something in them that's hurting. And it's almost our way of helping ourselves by helping others. Exactly. I also think that in order to do the type of work that
0: you and I do, you have to have come from that sort of, mm. I, to some extent, because I think that's unlocked so much empathy and compassion in yeah. me. I don't think I could do this without having had that experience. And I guess what you're describing, which is that ability to start to understand it. So how has delving into that and really seeing those patterns of pushing down your emotions and then the outbursts and the the busyness to avoid what was going on, how has that changed your ability to be calm because no one can be calm all the time right that's craziness to think that so how has that changed how
1: you are in your day -day yeah and I think you know quite rightly nobody can be calm all the time and trying to be as stupid you know when I'm not calm that's fine whereas before I'd feel like a failure if I wasn't but realizing you know all emotions are fine if I have an outburst if I scream if I yell that's absolutely fine I talk in the book about holler and heal or rupture and repair and just how to repair things when you do holler. It's not a case of screaming and shouting and presuming your children will be all right because obviously they're not. But just the recognition that actually it is absolutely okay to lose your call is really important. For me, the biggest thing I've changed is boundaries, saying no to a lot of people. I've always been worried about what people think about me and being polite enough and being kind enough. And To be able to just say, no, I'm really sorry, I can't help is a really big one for me because if somebody asked me to do something, whatever it was, I would, and I would just get so bogged down in things. And even like silly things, if there was somebody on a local Facebook group, like a local mum's Facebook group, and they say, oh, could anybody help with this? I had like some weird pull in me that I had to say, yeah, I'll help. And I looked around sort of noticed and realized that other people don't do this. Why do I feel the need to do this? And other people aren't thought badly of. So maybe I don't have to do all this constant volunteering for things. And I can choose what I say yes to. And I can dramatically reduce what I say yes to. So I've really massively practiced that over the last two years. I think I've reduced what I take on from others, whether it's work-wise or personal, probably about 90%. And the change in stress is, in. like, I still struggle with it. I still want to say yes and still find it hard to say no. But it makes such a difference to your daily life when you're not bogged down with other people's stuff all the time. I'm nodding and smiling because I'm obsessed with boundaries because Mm -hmm. I think
0: how you heal the good girl. I think I have to do it. When you started setting boundaries, what was coming up in you? Would you set the boundary and then feel guilty and want to take it back? Tell us about that because I think actually it's easy to say it. I think it's really hard, actually, to make that transition from... Of course, it's so hard, yeah. Good girl, people, please, a fixer, the hero child, as some people would call it, and in a child work, through to boundaries and having your worth defined from within rather than from without. it's a, mm. I mean, it's a life-changing transition, isn't it? What did you learn about
1: yourself starting to do that? There's a whole chapter on the book about guilt. It's not just guilt because of this, but guilt because of everything else. I don't know. Basically, just said to myself that you are still a good person if you don't help others all the time and have to always come back to that point every time somebody asks you to do something. And it's quite hard for me professionally with the public persona that I have because I'm seen as being, you know, I talk about gentle parenting and this helpful style. And I am inundated. And I mean, inundated every day with people who send me private messages and emails asking for my help. I get probably 50. Just on Instagram, maybe 50 messages every day asking for help, and I can't help them. So, for me, setting that boundary, thinking, you know what, I can't help, however bad it is. I feel bad if I cherry pick who I answer to. So, I just have a really firm boundary that I just don't answer them. And that still feels uncomfortable for me. But then I think, well, I do give out a lot of stuff, you know, even if you never buy one of my books, I give out stuff on my blog, on my YouTube, on my Instagram or my Facebook or my, you know, I, there's so much stuff out there that I think it just keeps coming back to myself saying you do enough. And we need you to be
0: resourced because mm. you can't write books if you are spending your days replying to DMs. And I think that really hard sort of transition in mindset, which I think is actually more prevalent to mothers than fathers, which is- Yeah, I do. My profound- right and duty as a mother to make sure that I am resourced because if I get burnt out I can't help anyone tell us about your experience with burnout and this idea of having it all and how do we begin to figure out where we do put our energy in Mm. our lives we have been used to just letting ourselves
1: get horizontally burnt out giving to everyone else I think you have to start from the position that not just motherhood but childcare is really undervalued so there's a section I talk about in the book we just don't pay child care workers enough we don't value them enough so we start from that position which I think is why mothers are more likely to do it you know it's like a whole sort of patriarchal misogynistic view that goes back decades or centuries but this feeling that we should always be doing more like it's not enough just looking after children and I think I started that because when I had children, initially I was a stay at home mum. I left my job to stay at home with my kids. And I always felt not enough for society like that. I'd gone from a really respectable, high powered job to just being a mum. And that took sort of time to get my head around. I think I felt that I always had to do more. So I started, I don't know, just coming up with more and more business ideas and volunteering for different committees and stuff like that. And then this is when. 2012 and I won this Britain's busiest mum award with a big mobile phone brand and a big magazine and it was so damaging and so toxic but so applauded and my write-up was like literally Sarah has two businesses and she's on two different committees and she's got four children and and it was like really applauded and I still felt like oh that's really good I mean I'm busy and that's great and people applaud me for that And I kind of carried it through a little bit. And what I've really realised, I've mentioned this before, is that children get older. I always thought that I would have more time and mothering would be a lot easier. But I found the reverse to be true. And then what I realised is the busier I was and the more I worked, there was nothing that caused it, but just a real light bulb moment that I was doing all this work and trying to earn money and being busy for my children. But in the times when I was being busy and earning money for my children, I was ignoring my children and not caring for my children. And actually that was a much worse thing for them. So getting my kids through COVID, you know, older teenagers, getting them through the start of university with COVID restrictions and GCSEs and driving lessons was so unbelievably stressful that I just thought, you know, actually now I need to prioritize them, which means I need to drop so much other stuff. And it's kind of, I don't know, I think it's maybe almost in line with a midlife crisis as well. I always thought that I should try and expand what I do, you know, write an e-course, do this, do that, and bring in more money, get those six figures. And I really don't want that. It's very privileged to say, but money really does not drive me. I just want an average life. I don't want a big house and those exotic holidays. I just want to be happy. And I want my kids to be happy. So I realized how damaging my previous behavior was. And I'm sort of trying to unpick it. And actually, I do less and less as the months go by. And that's really hard because people keep saying to me, I'm doing the tiniest, tiniest book tours for this new book where I'm literally going to five places that are within 45 minutes of my house. And people keep saying to me, oh, will you come to here? Will you come to here? Will you come to here? And normally I'd be, yeah, sure, let me go and book this and let me end up doing a whole UK-wide tour. But I'm not. I'm literally just doing those five little local places and I'm not booking talks anywhere else. I'm not booking another tour. And it's really hard because I feel like people want me to, I should go and do it, but I just can't do it anymore. you
0: spoken to your children about the impact or what their experience of you was and what their experience of you now is. It sounds to me like you've had a huge inner, I would call it spiritual awakening because that's mm. the language that I put on stuff. But
1: have you spoken to them about the transition? What do they say? Not really, not openly about it. I think, you know, I am really open and we do talk about everything, but we've never had a specific conversation. I think they've maybe noticed that I've been around a little bit more. So my eldest has needed me an awful lot in the sort of the, he's in second year at uni now, but he really sort of needed me there a lot. And hopefully I was there a lot for him. So I hope that kind of subconsciously they've noticed that mum's around a lot more than she was and not going out so much. But no, we haven't specific, they weren't. I always did it really well. I don't think it really bothered them that much. You know, their dad was always with them. If I did travel around the UK, they'd come with us and we'd make it into like little mini holidays and I'd work on the Saturday, but we'd have the Sunday out. So it was always very, it was the same classic scenario. I was always really conscious of everybody's needs apart from my own. So I don't think it really negatively affected them much more than me being angry. I think they probably would look back on it and say it was quite fun. When you talk about that shift, when you talked about looking after everyone's
0: needs, but my own, tell us about your transition to being kinder to yourself internally with your critic. Because I'm guessing so much of that inner critic was driving this business, driving that behaviour. How have you managed to transition yeah. from that internal
1: voice? Again, there was no one specific thing, but just constantly reminding myself, it's okay to say no. Actually, you've got a day off. It's okay to just lay on the sofa or read a book. You don't have to be productive. It is like a constant conversation that I have with myself. Just, it's almost like, like, I think the Sarah Ogwell-Smith people know from my books and from stuff like that. It's not a persona. It is me. There's nothing fake about it. But the public persona of me, I think, is much more together than the real me. And it's almost like I have a conversation with the public persona of me and the real me. I sound really crazy, don't I? Like I almost give myself advice, which sounds quite mental. But no, there you no, go. A, I do that all the time. Yeah. It's a well-known
0: journaling practice. Yeah. Ask yourself a question at the top of the page and ask your wisest self, which I guess you would say is your sort of public, you know, to come through and give that answer. I think it's an, I do it all the time. It's an incredible. Yeah. Yeah, Or sometimes I pretend that I'm coaching myself. (laughs) You know, what would I say say if I was my own client, you know, I would ask them these questions. I would think about
1: these things. I think that doesn't sound crazy to me. I think this having just a couple of months was like it's okay to say no it's okay to do nothing or it's okay to do less that I would tell myself and it does get much easier you know I've been on this journey for two and a half years and I feel in a really good place now like it's not always really difficult so I feel much more not Calm. Do you know I wanted to call this book how to be a calmer parent? (laughs) Not calm. I don't think anybody can be. Not all of the time anyway, but I am definitely feeling much calmer and it becomes much more second nature. Tell us about the Peaceful Pentagon. So most of the book is about kind of emotions and psychology, but you can't get around the fact that if we're not looking after ourselves physically, then that will hugely impact as well. So they're just five points The idea in art that the Pentagon is meant to sort of represent the perfect human form. So in the book, I talk about Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. I love art and people might realise. And picking these five points to sort of not perfection, but sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but something to aim for anyway. So the five points I talk about are eating well, and I don't mean eating more like a specific diet. I think you mentioned that you got my gentle eating book. So it's kind of honoring your natural appetite and not restricting yourself from things and just sort of treating yourself really kindly when it comes to eating. Sleeping well, which actually I've always been really good at. I've been really lucky to always sleep well, but I'm really conscious that, I won't stay up and work in the evening, which was something I used to do. Like when my kids went to bed, I'd be like, okay, I can grab two or three hours to do work now. That just does not happen. I prioritise my sleep. And if that work doesn't get done, then so be it, because actually it's much worse if I don't sleep. And things like sleep hygiene, you know, being aware of how lighting and temperature and humidity and stuff affects your sleep, which is quite interesting, because when I talk about child sleep, I think a lot of people are so kind of on it when they look at the environment for their baby or toddler sleep and they have a great bedtime routine for them and perfect bedroom. And then they go and collapse with no bedtime routine in in a room that has poor sleep hygiene. It's about optimizing our own sleep as well. Resting well is really just taking time to relax and realizing it's a necessity, not a nice thing to do. So if you have like a mental chore list of something to do today, then adding some downtime. Nothing's prescriptive. It's just, you know, however that you like to do that. I talk about spending time in nature and the whole Japanese shirin Yoku and the effects of being in forests and forest bathing. And for me, my thing is walking barefoot on earth. I'm a Taurian. I'm an earth sign, and I just like mud. So just walking outside on grass with bare feet and I've got a little greenhouse and I just go potter in there. And if I get into a forest or a wood, it really makes a difference as well. So going for a walk in like a town park or something like that. And the last one is moving well, which is not about specific types of exercise, but just the impact of exercise. And there was a nice study that I spoke about talking about parents, new parents during the COVID pandemic and the researchers looked at what really helps them with sleep deprivation and anxiety and stress and they found that actually it wasn't having more sleep as most people would think would make them feel happier and calmer and more rested. The thing that had the biggest difference to their mental health and physical health was exercise. So doing regular exercise actually helped them than getting more sleep. I hate exercising which... Comes back to what I was saying in my gentle eating book that when we're children, exercise then becomes something we do at school up until the age of three or four, we love to run and skip and jump. And then we start having PE lessons. It becomes a bit of a chore and we're told that we're doing things wrong or right, or we're awarded for it or praised for it. And some children thrive on sports and that environment and other people then suddenly lose the joy of moving and it becomes something else we have to do or something else we're not good at. And I was always the really awkward child who fell over her own feet and stuff like that. So I was not a sporty kid at all. I hated then exercising because it took me back to that place of being the awkward, useless one who, you know, at junior school when they have the ropes that you climb up and all my friends would be up the top of them. I'd be hanging on the bottom like for dear life with the teacher's hand on my bum, trying to push me up and like, I could never do it. So I always thought I was useless and I therefore hated exercise. And I've tried so many forms of exercise. I've done Tai Chi, I've done swimming, I've done yoga, I've done Pilates because I knew I needed to move and I knew it would help your mental health, as I say in all my books. And nothing really clicked until this is another kind of thing that changed recently. I started doing CrossFit and weightlifting, which in a, never in a million years would I have thought that I'd be good at because that's all for like really fit gym people with lots of muscles and really slim and stuff. And I love it so much. You go in there and there's really loud rock music or dance music and you can just throw stuff around. And I'm really bad at it, like really horrifically bad at it. I have to have a personal trainer because I'm too bad to go into like the general population. I'm seriously not joking. I said to my personal trainer, do you think I could go into the main group soon? And he kind of looked at me with a pitying look. So we are aiming that like I can be in gen pop by kind of like in about six months. But until then, no, I have one-to-one because I'm so bad. But I just find it just like a revelation, sort of pushing these heavy trucks around. But it, this goes back to like being a teenage girl and like you're, everybody wanted to be slim and, you know, waif-like. I grew up in the era of Kate Moss and that. But now I'm like, I love my muscles. I've got really big muscles and I really love it. And I feel really strong which is so much nicer than feeling thin. Obviously, you know, that's not for everybody. The key is finding your thing. And I really do think there is a thing moving wise for everybody, but maybe look outside of going to the gym and the conventional stuff. You know, maybe it's roller skating or hula hooping or dancing, but just moving makes such a difference. Every time I go to CrossFit, I wake up, it's like, oh gosh, it's a CrossFit day. How can I get out of this? What excuse can I make today? And I don't, I force myself to go and then come back with the endorphin high that makes you feel great for the day. And that's made such a difference to just my general state of calmness for the rest of the week. It's amazing how much resistance, isn't it? I'm exactly
0: the same with the resistance to doing the things that I know are good for me.
1: Yeah. always that
0: resistance Just a quick break from Sarah and I's conversation because I want to tell you about our wonderful sponsor, who is a product that I use every single day. It's called Athletic Greens. I have been taking it every day since October. And I've got to tell you, my energy levels have never been higher. Well, since having the girls, I've also noticed an improvement in my mental clarity and alertness which let me tell you is very welcome. I take my athletic greens first thing in the morning, right after I've made the girls' porridge. It's super simple. It takes less than a minute to do, and it actually tastes quite nice. So, with the one delicious scoop that I give myself every day of athletic greens, I'm getting 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It takes minutes to mix up. So, you know, the mornings are crazy while they are in our house. So it's perfect for our busy, busy lives. And taking my athletic greens every day is one thing that I can do every single day to take care of myself. And every time I have it and the girls see me preparing it and drinking it, I'm showing myself through my actions that I deserve to feel good. And I am worth looking after. It's almost like putting the petrol in the car for me. And it helps me remember my mantra, I can only be the mother I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs, which is brilliant with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Please do use that link because that means that they will continue to support our podcast if they see that lots of us are going to learn about the product. So that's athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to my chat with Sarah. What else are you still resisting? What lessons are you
1: still learning? There's a whole chapter in the book about perfectionism. I am a huge perfectionist. You know, when we go for a job interview and they ask us, tell us one bad thing about you, everybody thinks we should say we're a perfectionist because, okay, it's a bad thing, but it's a good thing for an employer. And I think actually it's really highly damaging. It all starts in childhood. So going back to childhood, I was not just the good girl, but I was the academic good girl. I always got really high grades and I would get awards and, you know, win sort of challenges nationwide for things. And my parents were really proud of me because of my academic achievements. And I kind of feel that I have to do everything to the absolute best of my ability which means I also don't ask for help from other people because I'm worried subconsciously that they won't do it as well as me, which makes me sound horrible. It doesn't come from me thinking other people aren't as good as me. It comes from me thinking that I just can't necessarily trust this for other people to do it to the level that I need it done. Silly things like doing the housework. I can really struggle to let people do the housework with me because I don't like how they do it then that makes things much worse because I get burnt out and exhausted and the housework doesn't get done. And then that makes me even more stressed. So just learning to reduce the perfectionism a little bit and realize, I talk about in a bit something called the Nirvana fallacy, which is the idea that there is an ultimate perfect Nirvana or there's a perfect way to do something. And therefore the other ways aren't as good or are wrong, but it's just not true. You know, yes, there may be a way to do something absolutely perfectly, but that doesn't mean that everything else is subpar or wrong. So it's learning that everything can be good or okay, it doesn't have to be done amazingly, which is a really big thing. I totally relate, and it makes sense,
0: doesn't it? I think the moment you understand how the brain works, all this stuff makes sense, and that's why we have to go back to childhood. Because hmm. I'm exactly the same as you. I was a massive high achiever, and so I just had a really strong neural pathway that was like this equation: like try really hard, do really well, equals validation. Yeah, and that's the core need of every human is to be validated. Mm-hmm. I just hadn't quite been taught or figured out that I could validate myself I didn't have to get that from other people and that's a huge shift so easy to say and actually the costs of perfectionism were really really high for me it Mm. gave great stuff definitely yeah absolutely yeah I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't had that trait Exactly. Nothing's all black or white, right or wrong, is it? But I think for me, the perfectionism trips into that burnout territory, that yeah. i in my needs territory. And that's where I have to watch it. In fact, I quite like that I have a, a desire to do things at a really high standard. I don't mm. think, as you say, I wouldn't have, uh, the podcast wouldn't be doing as well if I didn't give a shit. Um, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you getting that balance between doing what you want to do in the world, but also holding on to your sense of self, your needs. How do you know when you're in a danger zone today? Because yeah. I guess you're describing that you live 20 years in that sort of adrenal mm-hmm. state. So what are your signals today that you're stepping
1: into that? I've practiced mindfulness for years, so I'm quite good at knowing The physical sensations when I'm getting stressed and also knowing the the emotional feelings that pop up when I'm stressed comes back to boundaries again. So I recognize that if I do take something new, I have to do it to the absolute best of my ability. And actually it's easier for me to change then taking on less so that I can do one thing really well and not eight things trying as hard as possible and then getting really stressed when they're not perfect. Again, it comes back to mostly just doing an awful lot less. It's just the self-talk thinking, you know, people won't think less of you if you're not perfect at everything. It's okay to, I don't know, write a newsletter and not spell check it. (laughs) Just silly things. Like I almost test myself to see what can I get away with to not be so perfect and still be okay with. And also the realisation actually that having flaws makes you much more relatable and makes you much more human. I do sometimes wonder if I give too much away. Like, it's really weird. If you look at my public persona, you've still got people who think I'm some sort of perfect parenting expert who's completely unapproachable. And then on the other hand, I'm presenting this. Yeah, I'm just a mum of four from Essex who's completely messed up, maybe even more messed up than you. Here's how much I've screwed up what i have found is that actually the more i talk about my flaws i think the more it helps people the more relatable it is and i think we just don't do that enough in our society particularly with parents or mothers in particular so i don't know i've kind of shifted from i want to present this sort of air of calm that you should aim for in parenting to actually here's what i am and i can still be a gentle parent i don't know quite like it i get almost better feedback from it and that really helps me as well as helping other people i think
0: I think that's such a huge shift though, because what I've really learned and seen in order to feel comfortable with that vulnerability of owning our flaws, we have to have done, or owning just being human, Hmm. we have to have a certain level of self-compassion and self-acceptance. Because I know for me, when I was really sticking a mask on and kind of white knuckling it through life, it's because I felt so disconnected and so afraid of my internal experience that was kind of my only real option so when I see someone out in the world like you are now and yeah the women I really adore and admire bringing that level of vulnerability I realize that that's because they've done quite a significant amount of unpacking in order to feel safe in the world yeah being that vulnerable again I think you know the busyness is a trauma response so is trying to be perfect so is Mm -hmm. trying to never show a a chink in
1: the chain, isn't it? And then it comes to a full circle, which I think is the only way that I talk about parenting, which is basically it's much healthier for your children to be brought up by a parent who isn't perfect, who does make mistakes, who does show all of their emotions, whether they're volcanic anger or zen calmness, that it's really unhealthy for a child to be brought up by somebody who they perceive to be perfect, doesn't make mistakes, is always calm. I don't think parents understand that enough. Every week at the moment, I get somebody from a different sort of media outlet wanting to talk about gentle parenting because it's kind of blown up on TikTok. It's been around forever, but everybody seems to think it's a new thing. And the one question they always ask me is, you know, so how do you be gentle all the time? And the answer is, well, you're just not. You can't be. And it doesn't mean that you're not cut out for following a calmer, gentler style of parenting if you're not calm all the time. And it doesn't mean that it's not for you if you lose your temper. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. But there's such a lot of misinformation out there that you have to be calm and together most of the time. And I really think actually being not together most of the time is much more healthy, not just for ourselves, but for our children too. So it comes back full circle. For my mum, who tried to hold it together for me, made me think I had to hold it together for her. If neither of us had hold it together, we would have both been much happier. I probably wouldn't be where I am now. I'd probably be, be having some sort of normal career because I'd be normal and fine and healthy and happy inside. But yeah, it's just so much better for our children when we are real we have to get that message out more. I was just thinking that gentle parenting is, I get the label
0: and I get the term, but in a way it's so restrictive because people think of, you know, floaty dresses and zen Mm. and dentals and organic. And it's it's not like that real parenting would, Mm. you know, it's it's so tricky. These words that we put to things that are so Mm. limiting and binding, and then we have to spend time discussing them. But what
1: is gentle parenting? What does it really mean to you? So there are only three main styles of parenting. It doesn't matter what label they have. They're authoritarian, authoritative, and permissive. Gentle parenting is just authoritative parenting, which basically means having realistic expectations of children, having a good connection with them, having empathy for them, having mutual respect, and having a dance of control. So you let the children have control when it's appropriate, and when it isn't appropriate, the adult has control. I think if anybody thought of good parenting in their head, that's what they'd think of the authoritarian is kind of the do as I say, not do as I do, disconnected Victorian parenting where they expect too much of children. Permissive parenting can go two ways. Either it's a very neglectful style and it's permissive because parents just don't care, or it's permissive because in some ways the parents are afraid of upsetting their children and making them cry when they have discipline. So, The expectations of behavior are all over the place. The kids are given too much control. There's not enough discipline. There's not enough boundaries. Gentle is just authoritative. I don't like the terminology gentle. It wasn't my idea, but everything else just felt a little bit more uncomfortable. The correct term is authoritative. I've been saying that word for 20 years and I still have to stop and spell it and say it in my head every time I say it. It's not a buzzword. It's not a mainstream word. So we can't use that. I would rather use the word parenting, just not give it a label. But then I think mainstream parenting is still very much authoritarian. There's still very much kind of punishment-based, consequence-based, parenting controlling. And I do think it's important to differentiate so that Parents know where they can go to find information that suits them, that follows kind of their style. I kind of hate the labels. I don't think we should have to label ourselves. And actually, most of the time I see something about gentle parenting, I don't believe it is. Most of the time, I think it's actually permissive. Like the whole TikTok trend, I don't recognize 90% of what's happening there as gentle parenting. I think when it's sort of out in the mainstream on TikTok, I think it's nine times out of 10, it's permissive parenting. But I don't know. It's so tricky. It would be so lovely if there were no labels. And I think actually going deeper, it would be lovely if there were no people like me and no parenting TV shows and no parenting books. And if we could have a society where we learn how to parent from our own parents and our siblings and our aunts and we weren't all really messed up and trying to live in a busy, misogynistic world. I almost feel like a sort of a parenting unexpert like, here's how to unlearn what you've learned from a messed up society. But Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I think we have to have labels, but I also hate the labels.
0: I love that, a parenting expert. That's been my whole journey in parenting is unlearning. I've just been unlearning a load of stuff. Yeah. That's how I feel. You said you wish that more parents knew the freedom of just being realer, just being more authentic. What else do you
1: wish more parents knew? I wish that they realised how much their own upbringing has impacted them. everybody has been impacted by it. I do genuinely wish that we live in a society that supported parents more and allowed them to be a parent without all of the stuff like the TV shows and the books and the experts. An example of this is that when I started writing about sleep, which was you know what twelve years ago, there was a huge sleep training industry and it was very authoritarian very sort of, this is what time, you know, basically on the back of Gina Ford. So this is what time that you should have a cup of tea and your baby should go to sleep and you should wake them up at exactly this time and stuff like that. And then then there was kind of nothing between about 2012 and about 2018. And I think that was quite a nice period. I think that parents are able to be a bit more instinctive. So now we've gone back over to this, there's a whole new sleep training industry and they all purport to be gentle, which should be nicer, I think. But Everywhere I turn now there are people advertising gentle sleep training and I think it really undermines parental instincts. They feel that they should do it but now they should just do gentle sleep training. I really wish that that just didn't exist because even with having all this gentle sleep training everywhere... It's nicer that it's moved from authoritarian, but I still think it really undermines parents and makes them think that they need to get this support and help and that they need to do something. And I think life would be a lot easier if they didn't feel that they had to do anything. It's, we live in such a broken society that we can't fix it. But it's not what I think I would like parents to know. I guess it is. I think I would just like them to say, you don't need anything. This is where it comes back to, <laughs> I don't really care if I don't get much money, but I also really regularly shoot myself in the foot and just say, do you know what? You don't need to read any of my books or do anything else that I do. Don't engage with it. In fact, don't engage with anybody who says or does anything like I do. Just kind of go with what feels natural. It's so silly. I'm such a bad business person. But I. It's think- that you don't need all this stuff. You don't need all this advice. And I sometimes genuinely believe we'd be better off without it.
0: Our conversation today, I think, is what parents need because trauma blocks instincts we know that Mm. I know for me the more that I have been able to heal and uncover those layers of those messages as you and I have so you know and you've so vulnerably shared that's connected me so much more strongly to okay if I do that that happens and You know, and I'm learning it for myself, but I know that I needed to do that level of sort of inner inquiry, really, in order to get there. And I think that's what parents need help with. Not, as you say, the sort of gadgets in the industry. My personal opinion is it's that you need help with. Be a therapist, basically. (laughs) We can't be traumatised parents trying to raise healthy children. It does not work and that's not about us you know healing is also deeply imperfect but as you say you know so beautifully that great parenting is really about who you are mm. and how you tackle your own demons to ensure you don't pass them on to your children
1: pretty much. this book is almost like I'm doing everything in a way that I've written before as odd as that sounds I feel that I've moved from the parenting advice arena, to the parenting support arena. Yeah, before we went live, I was sending my next book has no parenting advice at all in it. It's just talking about child development. And I think that's a shift I'd really like to see more. I think that's beautifully, beautifully eloquently
0: described from parenting advice to parenting support. Imagine, just imagine if everyone giving advice could just shift to, you know, that more sort of coaching supportive style. Mm. It would be incredible to help parents, and particularly mothers, I think, you know, that's why I do the podcast. That's where my passion comes from, is to help them unlock those answers for themselves, not give them the answers. Exactly. So, That's deep stuff, isn't it? (laughs) It's just sort of like bombshell, might drop. (laughs) So I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Inner peace.
1: Sound like a real hippie, because then you don't need anything else. Do you? I think if things feel right and peaceful inside, then everything else is just much easier. Inner peace kind of has to start from feeling worthy and loving yourself, doesn't it? So I sound like a proper self help guru cliche love yourself first and everything else will follow.
0: It's a cliche for a reason. And there's a reason I'm unashamedly in the self help world because it has helped me. Mm. And I've read thousands of books at this point in that genre about how to do this and they all come back to that premise Mm. that the relationship with yourself is the most important you will ever have work on that and everything
1: else will figure itself out you know the whole going down the parenting route I think if people did start from that perspective and they were in a healthy place and they were happy with who they are and their place in the world I think they would naturally gently parent anyway Because that just comes from a place of empathy and compassion and respect. When you have that for yourself, you will naturally have it for your children. It's not about following rules. It's just about how you treat yourself is how you treat others. Exactly. Oh, it's been such a joy
0: and an honour. And I have to say, I feel incredibly inspired by your shift. I think it takes a lot of humility and courage. And I think it's going to be such a great service to this world. I can see how from this renewed place, you're going to be able to give so much more from such a strong grounded resource place. I'm so excited. I hope so. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes, well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk.
1: Take care. I'll see you next time.